Welcome to episode 28 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And we are going to take you down to Florida and talk about true crime and paranormal from that beautiful state. So hop on in the station wagon. (laughs) (laughs) And I see you brought some beer. I brought some beer. Surprise. Surprise. Yes, I found a brewing company from Florida called Cigar City Brewing. And I know you weren't a fan of the IPA last time. No, no I wasn't. <laughs> she had like a weird allergic reaction, reaction to, to it. <laughs> I don't know if you guys realized, but mom's voice started getting quieter and quieter as I couldn't talk. <laughs> I was handing her water. At first, she was drinking more beer to make it better. <laughs> I was just like, mm, okay. So this week, I got an American wheat ale with lemon peel. Oh, nice. That should be refreshing. Yes, it definitely should. And I know you like wheat ales. So again, this is from Cigar City. And the can says it was born in Tampa, Florida. And it is brewed with lemon drop hops. Oh, I know. That's really cool. I'm anxious to see, to taste. Hey, I see. I want to taste. (laughs) I'm anxious to taste this. Oh, wait. I like what it says. No, I really like what it says. Go ahead. Especially with golf now being one of the only sports out there that we're able to watch. (laughs) Um, Wedge cut is what it's called. Whether you're slicing lemons, a golf ball, or the end of a cigar, our effervescent American wheat ale brewed with lemon peel, lemon drop hops, and malted wheat will proffer the perfect compliment. All right. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> Let's see. How it's the going. end. <laughs> Let's see. Pour it in that killer hangover glass there, Mom. Let's see about this. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's going to go down way too easy for me. It's very similar to a Boulevard wheat, which is something that I love here from home. But it has more of a softer lemon taste than a Boulevard wheat does. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not. It's not super, super lemony, but it does have that tart. The aftertaste is a lemon. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds weird, but it's really true. No, that is really, it's very light. It's very easy to drink. I really like it. I might be cracking into a couple of those during this episode. Obviously, I do too. I think I drank just half of it. It's very refreshing. So again, that is wedge cut. Y'all should try it. Nice. Mm, That is good. Well, it's a lot better than the story I'm going to tell you. (laughs) This is not the first time you've heard his name. I did mention him last week with Lucas. Yes. Otis Elwood Toole, otherwise known as Otis. Yes. After the episode last week, I went back and I watched that Netflix documentary about Lucas Mm -hmm. and I noticed he was calling him Otis Mm -hmm. so this is the same guy this is the same guy this is that guy as I was watching uh different interviews with him and stuff some people most people call him Otis right that's Uh, what I I've never heard the name Otis but occasionally I heard Otis okay 
That is oddest. <laughs> that was a dad joke right there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Good old Tool was born March 5th, 1947 in Jacksonville, Florida. His father was an alcoholic who abandoned the family, unfortunately. Tool claimed his mother was abusive and would dress him in girls' clothes and call him Susan. Now, who does that sound like? Oh, that sounds a lot like Lucas. Yep, almost like the same background. He also claimed that he was sexually assaulted as a young boy by relatives and their friends. This included his older sister. Mm. His grandmother, Tool claimed, now remember, this is all Tool telling us this. His grandmother, he said, was a Satanist who introduced him to satanic practices and rituals, including self-mutilation and grave robbing. His grandmother taught him this? Yeah. She actually called him Devil's Child. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What a way to grow up. With an IQ of only 75, Tool was said to be mildly mentally challenged. Okay. So, and this... You can really pick up on this when you listen to his interviews. Mm-hmm. He also had epilepsy, which induced frequent grand mal seizures. Oh, wow. So we're just, oh my gosh. We're just piling a bunch of stuff on top Jeez. of this poor kid. So a happy childhood this was not, and too often ran away from home, sleeping in abandoned houses. As a child, he found one thing that really attracted him, and that was fire. Oh, no. And he actually became a serial arsonist. Oh, my gosh. Tool said that he knew he was gay when he was 10 years old. He dropped out of school when he was 14. Again, very, yep, similar to Lucas, and started visiting gay bars. According to Tool, this is when he committed his first murder. So. At 14? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So story goes, he was picked up by a traveling salesman Mm -hmm. um, for sex. Uh, they had sex, and then the guy didn't want to pay him. And so the traveling salesman kind of uh, threatened him. And kind of, he got, I don't know, the story is kind of weird, but they both got out of the car, and Tool jumped into the car and ran the guy over. Oh, oh, God, did not see that coming. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I didn't know it was headed there. But he was never tried or he was never even picked up for that he just so is it true or not just, mm-hmm. is he another liar like <laughs> liar liar Lucas? Yep. well we'll see pants on fire because he's an artist sorry <laughs> man these jokes are good <laughs> that's why you guys listen to us right at 17 tool was arrested for loitering not murder <laughs> loitering jeez between 1966 and 1973, Tool became a drifter, supporting himself by prostitution and panhandling. Finding himself in Nebraska in 1974, he actually became a suspect in the murder of Patricia Webb, 24. How did he get all the way to Nebraska? Drifting. <laughs> Drifting in that canoe. <laughs> all the way to Nebraska. Uh, I don't know about a canoe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He moved on to Boulder, Colorado, where he became a suspect in the murder of Ellen Homan, 31. Jeez. He moved on and moved back to Jacksonville, Florida in 75. (laughs) He married in 76 to a woman who's actually 25 years older than him. Oh. I really, mm, 
didn't even want to mention this because they were only married for three days. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That same year, he met Henry Lee Lucas at the soup kitchen that I talked about in Jacksonville. And as I said, when I was talking about Lucas, the two of them became inseparable and supposedly had a sexual relationship. Okay. In April 1983, Toole was arrested for arson and while in prison confessed to the arson and killing of George Schoenberg, who he said he barricaded in the man's house and set the house on fire. Oh my gosh. In June of the same year, Henry Lucas was arrested. And it was at this time that Lucas began talking about all the people he and Toole had killed. So remember last week's uh, episode. Mm -hmm. At first, Toole denied the claims, but later joined in and backed up Lucas because he realized how much attention this was drawing. How much celebrity he was getting. My gosh. If you, um, well, this is just my opinion, but if you listen to their recorded jailhouse phone conversation, I really think Tool was in love with Lucas. Really? How so? The only real friend he ever seemed to have was Lucas. I mean, it just, yeah, he was just, um, well, first of all, they always one bested each other. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I killed those people and I barbecued them and ate them. Remember, that's right. what Tool yes. did. <laughs> Lucas didn't because he didn't like barbecue sauce. Anyway. So <laughs> So they're like always one besting each other. Well, I killed five people. Yeah, well, I killed eight people, but you know, I I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird, very competitive. But when you listen to Tool speak, well, and I'll get into that, but it's very um he giggles a lot. I mean, kind of laughs a lot. Hmm. Um he is not very articulate. And he speaks very softly, very, very softly. Um, and he mumbles. I remember seeing that in the documentary. Yeah. It, it. He had a very soft, feminine voice. Very, very much so. So while he was in jail, Toole also confessed to the murder of Adam Walsh. He was a little boy who was abducted. Okay. I'm going to kind of go off on a tangent here because I found this kind of cause and effect thing really interesting. Adam was a six-year-old boy who was abducted on July 27, 1981 from a Sears department store in Hollywood, Florida. So, you know, all those times that you freak out because your child when you're going shopping isn't there. Yeah, there's reasons for that. Yes. The little boy's severed head was found two weeks later in a drainage ditch almost 130 miles away. Adam's father, John, was the host of the program, America's Most Wanted. Okay, that's why I recognize the name and the Sears. Okay, sorry, go on. His abduction and death gained national attention, and in 1983, the movie Adam was released. The movie was based on Adam Walsh. And it was broadcasted in 83, 84, and 85. And each time, names, pictures, and descriptions of missing children was aired. And that Mm. was the first time that that happened. A hotline was created. And in 83 alone, 13 of the 55 children were located. Oh, wow. In 1984, the U.S. Congress passed the Missing Children's Assistance Act, 
which led to the formation of the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Holy cow. So so all this is happening because of this little uh, boy yeah. being abducted. In 2006, Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, which was signed into law by then-President Bush. Because of this bill, there is now a national database of convicted child molesters and increased penalties of offenses against children. As there should be. The abduction and movie also caused, now this is kind of a little on the other side, it caused panic concerning stranger danger. Yes. Numbers of child abduction cases were totally blown out of proportion. Early estimates had as many as 20,000 children a year being abducted by strangers. So, hold on. So these are people crying wolf or these are just this all of a sudden spiked now people were starting to do this more? No, people weren't starting to do this more. They were just because there was such a panic that numbers were just, it was thought that a lot more children were being abducted than there were. And that's what caused a panic also. Isn't that crazy, though, how we go from small town America where everybody leaves their doors unlocked and children play out in the street without a care in the world. To, why don't talk to me. Yeah, to all of a sudden, like, I understand stranger danger and I teach my kids that, but I don't know. It's just crazy how... It is. Fear um, is that instilled all, in you now. But that all happened in my lifetime. I didn't grow up with the stranger danger thing, you right. know, but I was becoming a parent during that time. So oh, gosh, that's really scary. So parents panicked and children were scared to death because stranger danger, you're taught at home, you're taught at school, you're, you're taught at Sunday school, you're taught everywhere about stranger yeah. danger, you know. A study in 1990 actually found that 99% of child abductions were family related, not stranger. Oh gosh, that's just so sad. And the number of course is far less. I mean, even one child being abducted is too much, but Yes, I agree. Twenty thousand was uh, way beyond the number. Uh, my God, that makes me sick. So let's go back to Tool. Okay. Tool's confession. He said that he lured Adam into the car with promises of candies and toys. So he says he he's okay. He said that he did it. Why, you ask? Why? <laughs> Tool's answer was that he wanted to make Adam his adopted son. What? But the child wouldn't comply. So he hit him, strangled him, and decapitated him with a machete. The heck? The boy's body was never recovered. Tool said he burned it in an old refrigerator. Tool later retracted the entire confession. Now, I have to say that the case was totally botched up by the police. Mm. The police lost the bloodstained carpet from the car. From his car? From his car. They lost the machete. And in fact, they lost the whole dang car. What? Everything. Just poof. Bon. 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 <laughs> Boing. Gone. Okay. <laughs> That means it really (laughs) went boom. It went boom. (laughs) (laughs) So because of the recanted confession and the lost evidence, Tool was never charged. So he made a confession and they actually had evidence for this confession? It's kind of. 
hit and miss as far as <laughs> as that. They did have a car. They, they did had a machete. Ha- they found a machete. And but I don't know whether it was actually his car or some. I don't know because they weird. You'd think that they'd have more on him if they really. Well, regardless, actually had, it's a moo point because it's a mute point. It's a moo point. It's a cow's opinion. It doesn't matter. <laughs> don't you watch Friends? Come on, Mom. <laughs> So it's a moo point because the car and everything was lost. Gone. Yeah. Boom, as you put it. <laughs> Boop. <laughs> Tool was not charged with the crime. Interestingly, Jeffrey Dahmer was once considered to have committed the crime. Weird. He lived in Miami Beach at the time and was supposedly seen at the mall on the day Adam was abducted. But... I don't remember Dahmer going after children. No, his youngest was 14. Right. And this kid was what, six? Six. Yeah. I don't remember him his going after children. His MO didn't fit at all. The only his thing. His MO was sexual and he never really went after kids. No, he didn't go after children. The only connection was he cut off their heads. And he was in the area. And, and he abducted people. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Gosh, so they still don't know, though? After Dahmer was arrested, he was questioned about Adam, and Dahmer denied having anything to do with the crime, and backing this up by saying, hey, I've told you everything to the smallest detail. Why wouldn't I admit to doing this? Yeah. Which is totally true. I mean, he admitted to killing that one guy that nobody even knew was dead. Right, the hitchhiker. Adam's father, John, never believed the abductor to be Dahmer and always stuck to Tool as being the suspect. In 2008, the Hollywood, Florida police chief announced that the case was closed and that they were satisfied that Tool was indeed the murderer. But by this time, Tool had died in prison. What? What did he die of? But I will tell you. But Will, <laughs> you brought it up. So, going back to Tool in prison. Okay, now he's alive. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> in 1984. It's paranormal story now. <laughs> Tool confessed to two unsolved murders. David Shallot, 18, and Ada Johnson, 20. I love the name Ada. However, at an appeal to psychiatrists testified in their findings, Tool was extremely impulsive, excitable, personality disorder and he was a pyromaniac as a result both sentences were changed to life what's a pyromaniac one who sets fires pyro 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 maniac remember he loves fire do you remember that do i have to go back no i remember (laughs) i remember it's never heard pyro pyro (laughs) p-y-r-o In 1991, Tool pleaded guilty to four more murders and received four more life sentences. Okay. I find it interesting to actually hear the people that I, and, and I think you do too, to mm-hmm. actually listen to them speak, like in interviews Absolutely. and stuff. The ones that you're researching. And of course, YouTube is usually where you can find all the interviews. Yeah, it totally, like reading about them or even hearing about them on a podcast is one thing and even looking at crime fit like photos and everything but when you hear them it just sends shivers down your spine sometimes it does it's so it's so weird because you just i i don't know what i expected yeah 
But then when I was listening to this interview with him, it was almost creepy how soft-spoken and... Oh, no. I saw that in that documentary that you told me to watch on Netflix. He was super soft, like I said, very feminine speaking. And he just laughed a lot. And Yes. He also, I mean, he he was, he mumbled. Mm -hmm. And so he's very difficult to understand. I will have to say that. So. So odd. Most of the interviews were produced by Sandra London, who kind of, I'll be honest, picked some weird music <laughs> to play in the background. <laughs> I mean, it was weird music. And it sometimes, because he's so soft-spoken, it overrode him. drowned him, him out. So you couldn't understand what he was saying. Oh. Plus he mumbled. <laughs> it was a little hard to understand. You got the gist of things. <laughs> did you, though? <laughs> <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> In a 1993 interview, what I found on YouTube, Tool described himself as a pyro dot 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 maniac. <laughs> Instead of one word, he put it as two. Like, I'm a pyro giggle giggle maniac. <laughs> he did. He like giggled and then he giggled after that. And he said he'd like to see a whole city burn down. When asked what he feels when he sees something burn, he giggled and he says he feels very sexually excited well okay he didn't really say that he acted it out (laughs) what (laughs) oh please don't (laughs) like i said he wasn't very articulate (laughs) (laughs) that was really mean as he was talking about killing people he said ain't make no difference what you kill you step on a bug you kill it a butcher a pig or a cow ain't no different from a person. Once you get into it, there ain't nothing like to it, like drinking coffee or smoking a cigarette. Later in the interview, he stated that he didn't understand himself. I, I thought like I didn't really understand. <laughs> I thought this was kind of actually profound. You got to understand yourself before you can understand anything else. Mm. Interesting. In the video, Otis Tool talks one, two, and three by Sandra London. <laughs> Tool, Tool admits he did not have a happy childhood, and as he got older, he got wilder and wilder. He was into everything, but he insisted not child molesting. No, he was never into that, and he made it a point. I mean, he was adamant about that. Oh, I wonder why he was so adamant about that. He admitted that when he was 14, he ran over the salesman, but hastened to add that the salesman forced him to have sex and then threatened to kill him. Oh, gosh. It was just self-defense. He was running around the car to get at me, and I just ran him down. Oh, gosh. Tool did mention his grandmother, the satanic worshiper. She would take little Otis out at midnight and teach him rituals. He said that when he got older, he became a member of a satanic cult in the Everglades called hand of death he and lucas were taught methods of abduction rape and murder in this cult members would kill a victim drink the blood and eat the flesh of the victim then following the ritual the members would drink take drugs and have wild orgies now this again is what tool said when the fbi lucas never mentioned anything about that did he 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 did in some of his interviews oh he did and that's where he was talking about he didn't eat the people. Mm. This is when 
Otis supposedly ate the people (laughs) (laughs) or partook of it. But when FBI agents and, and police went through the Everglades looking for where Otis said these people were. There was never any. They never never found anything. Hmm. So I don't know. Interesting. That's quite the story if it's a story. Interestingly enough, though, both the son of Sam and Charles Manson mentioned the Hand of Death cult as being the true masterminds behind their crimes. Son of Sam blamed his neighbor's dog, and Manson... So I'm, I'm going to watch my words with Manson. <laughs> I'm interested because we're going to do both of those. Yeah, yes. So I'm interested to see if this cult, the hand of death, is going to be mentioned again. Tool later admits, I was really a mess. Wouldn't do it again. I take meds now. Keep me calm down and I don't hear things in my head no more. He said that he's been trying to sort through stuff, but he don't know which way to go. When up on the witness stand, and you can see this also on the video, when up on the witness stand in Colorado, Tool said he didn't kill anyone and adds, I say I did it, you don't believe me. I say I'm lying, you don't believe me. I mean, he was really like, he he had a good point. No matter what he said, it was always doubted, no matter what he said. He later went on to say that he and Lucas were lovers, but then said that he was sorry he even knew the bastard. Oh. This world ain't big enough for the two of us in it. I loved him so much, I hate him. Oh. Okay, so Tool died in Florida State Prison from cirrhosis of the liver. What is that? That's when you drink too much usually and your liver dies. Oh. Mm. On September 15th, 1996, <laughs> he was only 49 years old. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know. I Some of these people, when you're researching them and you're watching the interviews and everything, I, I'm i not a real soft heart, but I tend to start feeling sorry for them. I mean, not. I still want them to be punished, but it's like they, they're coming That's from such your... a bad childhood and... and I don't know. Well, that's just your natural human empathy, though. Like, just that—that's what's difficult about this kind of podcast or a book that you read or a documentary is that you learn where they come from. It humanizes them, where they're real people, and they've just been set on the wrong path for the most part. I mean, like people like Dahmer weren't, you know. Right. It just, but this guy—he just seems so lost. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know, that part of this is kind of sad because. No, it is. It's like, had somebody stepped in early and tried to help him, would he have gotten on the right track? I don't know. I don't know. Nature versus nurture. We're going back to that. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Was it the chicken or the egg? I don't know. So that was Otis, Otis, whatever you want to call him, Tool. Oh, yeah. He was an interesting character. So how many people he really did kill? As with Again, Lucas, I don't know. As we with won't Lucas, know. we don't know. Yikes. All right, so now we've heard about both the guy who didn't like barbecue and the guy who did like barbecue. Lucas and Tool? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my turn, my turn, my turn. Okay. Okay, friends. Are you ready to learn some stuff and get spooked all in the same story? Yes, yes. <laughs> Actually, Mom, I have a test for you. All right. (laughs) I'm going to ask you a few questions. Okay. And if you get the question wrong, you have to take a drink. (laughs) Good thing you passed another beer over here. (laughs) All right, Mom. 
Question number one. What is a Grumman TBM Avenger? (laughs) (laughs) Can you give me a hint as to what plane we're even on? Yeah, you're right. It's a plane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm empty my pants. mom that means i have to drink oh shucks don't know how you did it <laughs> yes <laughs> a grumman tbm avenger was an american torpedo bomber a plane it first saw action in the battle of midway which was a battle in is this, another this is question, question number two <laughs> battle of midway was a battle in in the South Pacific or in the Pacific? But in which war? World War. Yeah, two fingers. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> God, I should have known that right offhand. That was stupid. I'll drink again. Okay. So the Avengers torpedo bombers used by the U.S. Navy when it was initially developed. Now, these planes were always a part of a task force. They didn't navigate. That wasn't their mission. Their mission was to drop torpedoes. They usually just followed the fighters or dive bombers. But just in case, torpedo pilots, keep in mind this is after World War II in 1945, they were taught dead reckoning. Question three, what is dead reckoning? These pilots were taught that? Mm Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to have to drink on this one, dead reckoning. They reckon someone's dead? (laughs) Drink. (laughs) Drink. (laughs) Dead reckoning is a way of navigation. Naval pilots mostly fly missions over open ocean. And over the ocean, there are no like landmarks or anything like that. So, and keep in mind, this is before GPS. So they basically had to just do a math problem. They'd have to fly in a known direction at a known speed for a known time and generally that would put you where they're trying to go so they reckon they were in the right place (laughs) (laughs) so these pilots needed three things a compass an airspeed indicator and a clock the tbm avenger came with two compasses a gyro compass and a magnetic compass there was also a clock on the dash along with an airspeed indicator and the pilots usually wore a wristwatch Okay, last question. Tell me how 14 airmen in five Avenger planes, each plane acquired with all the necessary tools, goes missing, just disappears, never seen or heard from again over the Atlantic Ocean. Were they flying the mission together or is it separate times? Together. Wow. This is the question that has gone unanswered for years. Five planes vanished over the Bermuda Triangle with no crash sites, no bodies, no debris, nothing found. I'm going to tell you the story of Flight 19. Ah, lovely. Great. So first of all, the name can be a little confusing. Flight 19 was more than just one plane. It was five. The 19 stands for the fact that this group was the 19th group of trainees going out that day. The group consisted of 13 trainees and their teacher, their commanding officer, Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor. Taylor was a United States Naval officer. 
He had fought in combat over in the Pacific Theater as a torpedo bomber in World War II and was a very experienced pilot. He became a flight instructor in 1942, being transferred from place to place to teach. He was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, teaching in 1945. He had quite a lot of flight hours under his belt, about a thousand in an Avenger itself. The day was Wednesday, December 5th, 1945, and the trainees were to complete the assignment called Navigation Problem Number 1, where they were to run the exercise of dead reckoning while dropping some torpedoes. The trainees were to take turns leading the way, and if they were to go off course, the lead pilot, in this case Taylor, would guide them back to course. It was a routine exercise that would take about three hours, done many times before. And again, the planes were all together. Mm-hmm. They're flying together. It was actually the final mission for these students before they would graduate from their advanced training. So they were all taking off together. They're to stay in like a, a formation together. And they would each take turns leading the way. And then once their turn was up, you know, they would switch. And if they were to ever get off course, that's why Taylor was there to make sure that they stayed on course. It was a typical Florida day. The sun was shining with a chance of a storm later in the evening. The pilots had great visibility, though, an excellent day to fly. They did their routine checks and were cleared for takeoff. So... Better to explain the case with the root of the intended flight pattern. I'm going to walk you through a little drawing exercise. Oh. See, I told you we're going to learn things today. Okay, so if you're driving or on your morning walk, you can just imagine this amazing work of art in your head or press pause and do it when you're at home <laughs> with, or listen and then go back and then draw it at your convenience. But go and grab a piece of paper and a pen. Go on, I'll wait. Okay. So on your piece of paper, are you ready? Uh -huh. Oh, come on, Karen. Find that pen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now put your paper in front of you, hamburger style. <laughs> that means up and down, like, yes. like you're writing a letter. Yes. <laughs> now on your piece of paper, label north, south, East and west. Thanks. North at the top. <laughs> south at the bottom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> east on the right. And west on the left. Never eat soggy waffles. Guys, I told you we were going to learn some things in this episode. Okay. Now on your piece of paper on the left side. So from the end of your paper. Work in about two inches. And then drag your finger up to the top of the page. Now, from that top of the page, draw a line down until about two inches from the bottom of your page and round it back towards the west. Where do I stop? All the way to the paper, end of the paper. This is your coast of Florida. How does it look? <laughs> okay. Now, another landmass I want you to draw is an island of the Bahamas. <laughs> Wish I was there right about now. <laughs> okay, so put your finger on the southeast corner of your map. Now move your finger up about three inches. Now draw a small hot dog. 
Now, your hot dog should be about three inches from your coast of Florida. It's not three inches, but okay. Great work, class. <laughs> you all are going to have to send me pictures of these. <laughs> Especially if they're anything like my mom's right now. <laughs> I'm going to post hers. <laughs> My hot dog went from teeny to large to medium. <laughs> That's what she you said. Times you want to retract words. <laughs> okay, so on your Florida there, go up about an oh inch. God, we're not done yet. <laughs> oh, she's opening another beer. <laughs> hold on, just hold your horses. Okay. So on your Florida there, go up about an inch from the tip of your Florida. Go up oh about God. an inch from the south southern tip of your Florida. And there on the coast, draw a dot. That is Fort Lauderdale. Now directly across from your Fort Lauderdale, a little bit below the center of your hot dog island, which is Grand Bahama Island, draw a little circle. And maybe some little dots scattered around your little circle. This little circle represents the island called Great Stirrup K. And the little dots represent the broken land, like little islands in the area. This too is another landmark for the mission. Now I'm going to explain to you the route that was the intended route for the exercise. And you can follow this with your pen if you want to, to draw the route. The mission takes off from Fort Lauderdale and heads east towards Hens and Chicken Shoals. This area is halfway to the Great Stirrup K, the little circle you drew. While over Hens and Chicken Shoals, the drops are torpedoes. This part of the exercise would go until about 3 o'clock. They were to then continue heading east another 73 nautical miles. So if you're drawing your flight path, you drew a line from Fort Lauderdale to your island of the Great Stirrup K, the little circle. They then were to turn left or north for another 73 nautical miles. So your line has crossed your Bahamas Island, the hot dog island, the island being halfway of this flight path. In other words, your hot dog island is directly in the middle of your line. Your line extending about two inches below the island, extending two inches above the island. From there, the crew was to turn 240 degrees back southwest for 120 nautical miles to end the exercise back at Fort Lauderdale. Okay, so do you have your triangle? This was the mission's flight pattern for the trainees. Now you can just sit back and listen. At 2.10, the five Avengers took off from Fort Lauderdale heading towards Hens and Chicken Shoals in the Bahamas. Everything in the mock bombing run was going smoothly. They dropped their first torpedoes at the bombing area flawlessly. Radio chatter is heard from the flight tower in Fort Lauderdale. I've got one more bomb. A reply of, go ahead and drop it. The reported timeline of the mission is on track. They finish this part of the mission and start heading towards Great Stirrup K, your little circle you drew. Now, this should be visible to the airmen, but sometimes it's not. That's why dead reckoning is in order for this mock mission. Radio chatter is picked up at this time of the pilots discussing that they cannot see the island, only open ocean. 
Taylor is heard over the radio also a little concerned that he believes his gyro compass there in the cockpit isn't working properly. He wants to fly higher to try and get a better idea of what's around them. You see there on your maps you've drawn, and I've mentioned there should be some kind of broken land seen from where they are, the little dots. But the higher they fly, the more cloud coverage they are going into because of the incoming storm. And Taylor is heard expressing this on the radio. But they stay up there. Taylor, remaining calm, advises the men to set their clocks for 34 minutes, and they would continue to head north, practicing the dead reckoning tactic. They come down out of the clouds, again expecting to see land or something familiar. But all they see is just open water. Taylor thinks they may have overshot it, and the men discuss the differences in their compass readings. But it's okay. All they need to do is turn west and head towards the Florida coast, hoping to head in before the incoming rain. As the crew is heading back to the mainland, or that's what they believe they're doing, radio chatter is heard from the crew. The trainees are expressing discomfort, and some are even expressing how they feel disoriented as they are flying. They weren't noticing anything familiar. Around this time, another crew was heading to the bombing range, and they picked up a distress call. It was Taylor, desperate for a position check. Quote, Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale. I'm over land now, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get back to Fort Lauderdale. Unquote. Okay. Look again at your map. Go to the southwest corner there below your Florida you drew. Now, draw dots in little circles. I mean, this isn't perfect, but these little dots are to show you where he believed he was. This is the Florida Keys. So, it's around 340. Another pilot, Robert Cox, hears the radio chatter of the discombobulated Taylor and Flight 19 and wants to help. Taylor explains that he thought his compass was so wrong and he somehow ended up down in the Keys. If this is where he is, then all he has to do is fly north and get to Florida. Then he could follow the coast and find Fort Lauderdale. Because his compasses are broken, my question here is, so I just don't understand why they didn't just discuss their compasses and go off their readings, but... Anyway, Cox refers him to the sun, telling him, if the sun is over your left wing, then you are heading north. Stay on that track. Cox says that he will start flying the Florida coast heading south to help find them and direct them back to base. 45 minutes go by and Cox is now over the keys with no signs of Flight 19. And now the radio waves coming in are even more garbled. Now Taylor is panicking. The sun is about to set in in about an hour. The storm is moving in, and try as he might, the further they fly, the more lost they're getting. Oh, my gosh. Are they seeing any land at all? Just open ocean. The trainees remind Taylor of protocol. Protocol that he had expressed to them before they took off earlier that afternoon. If you get lost, turn the plane's nose toward the sun and fly west until you reach land. They ask Taylor over the radio if they should do this, but he's panicky and decides to turn back east. Oh, no. He's, oh no. He thinks he's overshot 
everything and is in the Gulf of Mexico and can't trust his compass. My gosh. Now, if you're referring to your map, the Gulf is the body of water that is not on your map. It's on the west side of Florida. I mean, honestly, that that doesn't even make any sense. Uh -uh. None of his decisions do. But I'm not in the air with 13 men depending on me with an impending storm and loss of sun. Oh, and now we have to start worrying about low fuel. Yeah. I'm sure he felt a lot of pressure. Radio chatter at this point is so distant that those on the coast can no longer reach Flight 19. Oh, my God. All they can do is sit and listen to the conversations over the radios between the 14 pilots. They agreed with the trainees of just heading west, but couldn't express that to Taylor or the crew. The men kept flying east. Around 5.15, the sun is set and rain is really starting to fall. The trainees are heard begging, and finally Taylor agrees to head west. 50 minutes of heading west. Five zero minutes. And Taylor is convinced that they are still wrong. And no one can reach out to them to help guide them. Those on land know that the men are in the Atlantic. That is where they have been tracked to. So they just need to keep heading west. But Taylor is adamant and again turns the crew east. Now, why are they listening to him at this point? I know he's, he's the, the flight commander, leader. But he's still. the senior officer. And not only that, remember, he's an experienced flyer. These guys really aren't. So now... If we look at our maps, he's still thinking he's off our map out there in the Gulf. But those in Fort Lauderdale are tracking them out there in the Atlantic, north of the Grand Bahama Island, the Hot Dog Island, out in open water. The area known as the Bermuda Triangle. At 6.30, the final words of the crew are heard over the radio back on land. Quote, all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. Oh. Search and rescue are sent out right away. Two PBM Martin Mariner aircraft went to assist. Now, these are planes that were patrol bombers made to fly over the ocean. So they had those kind of buoy things. They had the ability Mm -hmm. to land Mm -hmm. on the water if they needed to. At 7 p.m., the two planes split up to cover wider ground. About a half hour later, one of the mariners reported a radio check, and almost immediately, they too went radio silent. No. So now they're searching for six planes, 27 men, all lost in a matter of hours out in the open ocean. Five days. Five days of search and rescue sent out and nothing of these planes or those men were found no planes no debris no life jackets no men you can put your maps away now good work class take a drink for your hard work before i put my map away where is the bermuda triangle is it the triangle that we drew or is it no the triangle you drew is their flight path the bermuda triangle is actually big too big to draw on your maps you can't necessarily draw the triangle on your maps but it starts in miami which would be the southeast corner of your florida coast out there the other two corners of the triangle are puerto rico which is out southeast from miami 
and Bermuda, which is way out northeast of Miami. Many theorists have talked about sea monsters and even alien crafts taking these men. The Navy actually puts full fault on Lieutenant Taylor. I even read reports claiming he had been intoxicated before the flight. Oh, no, 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 no. But I, I don't know. I don't know if that's just what they blamed it on, but he had to go through tests and everything before they took off. So I, I honestly don't know. Plus, he had nothing to do with those other guys that came, the search and find people. The search and find people. <laughs> the search and find. But this the time they find didn't find. Guys. Um, he didn't have anything to do with them. No. But I will put all of this into theories because I don't think anyone really knows. Upon looking at our map, it it's frustrating because why didn't he listen to the crew and just freaking fly west? But again, we aren't under the pressure of everything either. And the theorists claiming aliens, the transcripts from Flight 19 are, are out there. There was no mention of anything odd like UFOs or anything in the transcripts. Of course, some skeptics say that the transcripts were tainted and parts were cut out. But in that case, I guess we'll never know if the aliens attacked that day. The Bermuda Triangle has always been a site of these unanswered questions, though. Like I said, the triangle covers about 500,000 square miles of the ocean. Okay, that's a lot bigger than I ever thought it was. I know. The area has baffled scientists, experienced sailors, and military investigators. This is not just some modern urban myth. It's as old as there are accounts as people traveling in that area. Reports of the triangle go as far back as Christopher Columbus. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Anyway, he reported entering this area and his compass started to malfunction. On another report while he was in the area, he described seeing something out in the ocean. What he described as a great flame of fire crashing into the sea one night. Hmm? A few weeks later, he reported another strange light, this time appearing and almost floating out in the distance. Now, we have to imagine this for a second. This man is sailing in the open ocean into the literal unknown. They don't know if they're going to find land. This is all untouched territory. They're just floating in the open ocean. No radio, no cell phones. No, they're just charting by the stars. Oh, can you imagine? Forget my story. That's terrifying. Oh, geez. <laughs> so he sees this light explains it in his journaling like flickering like a candle they thought possibly it was land so they start sailing towards it daylight breaks and looking around them there's nothing there's still no land just wide open seas william shakespeare's play the tempest is actually believed to be based on a mysterious shipwreck in the bermuda triangle many odd occurrences have happened out on the bermuda triangle more recently too in 1918, okay, so that's not that recent, but it's more recent than Christopher Columbus. I don't know about you, but that's not recent for me. In 1918, the USS Cyclops, a 542-foot-long Navy cargo ship, mysteriously sank between Barbados and the Chesapeake Bay. The cargo ship had over 300 men on board. They were last heard over radio saying, weather fair, all well. And then? Nothing. Nothing. 
The odd thing about this is that the Cyclops never sent out an SOS distress call, even being equipped to do so. And upon searching the ship, there was apparently no wreckage found. But no bodies were ever found either. Wait, they searched the ship? The ship it was had found? sunk. So the they found the ship. Sunk, but no wreckage. No distress call was put out. So it was and just the 300 whole... men are gone. So it's just the whole ship whoop, in the ground. I mean, in the ground. In the ground. In the bottom in of the, the water. In the bottom of the ocean. Yes. With nothing. And then it gets even crazier. In 1941, two of Cyclops' sister ships, taking nearly the same route, vanished. Then the missing flight 19 happened in 1945. Just more and more mystery surrounds the area. Theorists, like I mentioned before, blame aliens, reverse gravity fields, sea monsters, and even claiming that this area was where the lost city of Atlantis had been, and whatever took the city is still taking things out of the ocean. Let's chat a little more logically, though. No offense. From my story and from looking at your map, I honestly feel like Taylor, drunk or not, got lost. The planes ran out of fuel, crash landed into the ocean. I asked my cousin Cameron, he's in the Air Force, based out of Florida right now, actually, and he believed the same, even stating that the crew could have been eaten by sharks. Mm, well, of course that would have happened. There's also another natural explanation, too. Again, just playing the skeptic, devil's advocate. The Gulf Stream runs through the Atlantic Ocean in the area of the Bermuda Triangle. Think of this as a river literally running through the ocean. This stream can and does carry floating objects. So from my research, it seems that a small plane making a water landing in this river area or even a boat stalled with engine troubles out there would be carried by the current away from the position it reported. This may be why no wreckage was found. But then again, I have to wonder. Six planes, 27 men, yeah, and no sign. All searched for in the matter of five days. And nothing, nothing was found. Because even if it got caught in the current, the current has to go somewhere. Wow. I mean, we've all heard of it. Yeah. But again, I did not realize it spans such a huge area. And for the longest time, I'd heard of Flight 19. I thought it was one plane. True that, too. Yeah. True that. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was five planes with 14 men. Plus a search, search and find. And then one of the search and find planes goes missing as well. That just scares me every time I've thought I've gone to the Bahamas and I was flying you were in the Bermuda Triangle. I was triangle. in the Bermuda Triangle. That <laughs> <laughs> scares the bejesus out of me right now. <laughs> Jeez. Yes. So, like I said, I'm dying to see all your guys' maps. <laughs> You're not going to see mine. Yes. I'm posting a picture of her map for <laughs> sure. Oh, that was really interesting. So, not quite paranormal, but kind of spooky. A mystery. Well, it's definitely unexplained. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right, thanks. No, I'm still, I'm like. She's baffled, you guys. I am. <laughs> She's looking at her map. Damn it, I want answers. Jeez, I'll take ghosts any day before. 
<laughs> before the unsolved before the unknown like this i mean yeah i've heard about it of course but yeah no i had to cover it i thought it was so eerie good choice thanks excellent choice thanks well next week i made another excellent choice for the uh true crime let me tell you you're about to get spooked out of your pants again as somebody I, well, you are very familiar with, I guess, but I... After all the research I've been putting in, I'm very familiar with. <laughs> me, not at all. I know. I'm so excited to share his story with you. We will be covering the states of Vermont, New York, Washington, and Alaska, just to name a few. <laughs> oh, here's a hint. Drink has maple syrup. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, Interesting. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I want to remind you all of our Patreon account. In a couple weeks, I will be releasing a another extra episode. You can find that on www.patreon.com backslash Killer Hangover Podcast. I'll also post the link in our social media as well as the description of this episode. So, Beth, why should people subscribe to our Patreon? So becoming a patron, it's $5 a month, and you'll get an extra episode. Well, so right now you'd get two extra episodes. You also, we're also going to be releasing a blooper reel. You get first chance at merchandise, and all episodes are going to be releasing a few days early for you on Patreon. Yes. Also, the $5 goes to the production of this podcast as well as to our drinks every week. Just be honest. But any support is great support. So if you can leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, especially, or wherever you listen to your podcast, we would really appreciate that, even if it's on our social media page. Definitely. Thank you very much. And also recommendations. We've gotten quite a few, and we're going in their direction. So if you have any stories you also want to share with us, you can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media sites. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. All right, Mom. Florida was interesting. Florida was interesting. It's going to leave you scratching your head. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid.